invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to our text, this Lord's Day, as it's found in Hebrews chapter 11. And we'll be focusing primarily upon verse 16, but I think it's helpful, again, just to pick up a little bit of the context. So Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 16. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance obeyed and he went out not knowing whither he went by faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob the heirs with him of the same promise for he looked for a city which hath foundations whose builder and maker is God through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude and as the sand which is by the sea shore innumerable. These all died in faith not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country that is and heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. As we proceed in our series dealing with Israel past present and future, we have come now to a place where we're going to consider certain objections that might be raised uh, against the truth of that which is revealed in scripture, that there are yet promises to be realized and fulfilled in Israel by way of the restoration of the land to Israel. And I want to emphasize once again, as I have in past sermons, that though I believe the scriptures teach Israel will yet be converted to Jesus Christ and become a Christian nation, will at that time be brought into the Christian church, the church of Jesus Christ, and will at that time dwell in her land in peace and in safety among nations of this world. Nevertheless, I do not believe the scripture teaches that this 
future converted Israel will rebuild the temple, reinstitute the priesthood, or the sacrifices, or the ceremonies of the old covenant church, which Jesus abolished in his death, as we read last week and as we affirm again from Colossians 2.14 that all of these ordinances from the Old Testament were nailed to the cross of the Lord Jesus. For many Christians, the promise of the land to Israel uh, and the reinstitution of the Old Covenant ceremonies are tied and bound together in God's future purpose for Israel. That I vigorously oppose and deny. The promise of the land to Israel is a national promise. Whereas again, the Old Testament ceremonies, the Old Covenant ceremonies, those have been nailed to the cross. Those have been abolished in the death of Jesus Christ. The church of the Old Testament, dear ones, was a church under age, whereas the church of the New Testament is a full-grown church. Thus Israel and all of the nations will in the future be united into the same olive tree, the same visible church. They will all, Israel and all the nations, will profess and practice the same doctrine, worship, and church government. Israel as a nation, dear ones, has a future in God's purpose and plan. But Israel, as an Old Testament church, has no future purpose in God's plan. It is realized and fulfilled in the New Testament church and in the new covenant of Christ's blood. For the next couple sermons, we will be considering some objections to Israel's future inheritance of the land uh, in which Israel will dwell in safety and in peace at that future time. For the sermon this Lord's Day, uh, two main points. First of all, historical confirmation that believing Israel will inherit the land. And then the second main point, the objection that the earthly promised land was a type of the heavenly promised land. So we'll look at both of those this Lord's Day, God willing, by God's grace. So let's consider the first main point, historical confirmation that believing Israel will inherit the land. And I want to remind you, as I have in past sermons, 
that I use historical testimony not as our primary standard for faith and practice. That belongs to scripture alone. But rather I use historical testimony as a confirmation of scriptural truth in history by way of godly and learned scholars of the past who walked at least in the ways of the Lord as it pertains to these truths that we're addressing presently. Historical testimony, always remember that historical testimony does not establish truth. God's revelation in nature, God's revelation in scripture alone establishes truth. Historical testimony rather confirms God's truth that is already established by revelation. We don't want to confuse that because if we begin to confuse that, we end up uh, basically into believing that historical testimony is equivalent in authority to the scripture, which is again the danger of Rome, exalting their tradition alongside equal in authority uh, with the Holy Scripture. Before we consider the first objection, let us hear for just a, a few moments here from some non-dispensational scholars, teachers from the past in regard to the future restoration of the land to a converted Israel. Again, I want to, in so doing, uh, accent, emphasize, underscore that this position is not a recent innovation of dispensationalists in the last 200 years. First of all, and again, trying to not simply uh, quote those that I've quoted in the past uh, few sermons, but looking to uh, others as well, and particularly those who speak with regard to the restoration of the land, not simply a restoration of salvation, but a restoration to the land. First of all, John Owen, sometimes called the prince of English theologians who lived from 1616 to 1683, has written, Moreover, it is granted that there shall be a time and season during the continuance of the kingdom of the Messiah in this world, wherein the generality of the nation of the Jews all the world over shall be called and effectually brought unto the knowledge of the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, with which mercy they shall also receive deliverance from their captivity, restoration unto their own land, with a blessed, flourishing, and happy condition therein. Next, uh, James Durham, one of the most notable Scottish pastors and teachers of the Second Reformation in Scotland, lived from 1622 to 1658. He writes, Neither can that promise made to Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 2 through 4, 
that whenever they should repent, the Lord would gather them from the nations whither they were scattered and return them to their own land, be thought void and null after Christ's coming, that is, after his first coming, especially considering the general repentance and mourning which is to accompany their conversion. Therefore, it would seem by that promise they may expect their own land, it being part of God's engagement to the natural seed of Abraham. Then we go to the, the continent. Wilhelmus uh, of Brockel, one of the great pastors and teachers of the Second Reformation in the Netherlands, who lived from 1635 to 1711, asks these questions and then answers these questions. Will the Jewish nation be gathered together again from all the regions of the world and from all the nations of the earth among which they have been dispersed? Will they come to and dwell in Canaan and all the lands promised to Abraham and will Jerusalem be rebuilt? And then his answer, we believe that these events will transpire. But he has this qualification that he adds. We deny, however, that the temple will be rebuilt and that therein the previous mode of worship will be observed, that is the ceremonies from the Old Testament, Old Covenant, which prior to Christ's coming was of a typifying nature and would then be of a reflective nature. Next, J.C. Ryle a reformed Anglican minister who has many writings, uh, which we even to this day benefit from. He lived from 1816 to 1900. And he <clears throat> writes, I believe that the Jews shall ultimately be gathered again as a separate nation restored to their own land and converted to the faith of Christ after going through great tribulation. And he mentions various verses. And then no stranger uh, to uh, either our ears or to our eyes, uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, lived from 1834 to 1892, uh, preached this. There will be a native government uh, that is of Israel again. There will again be the form of a body politic. A state shall be incorporated and a king shall reign. Israel has, has now become alienated from her own land. Her sons, though they can never forget the dust or the sacred dust of Palestine, yet die at a hopeless distance from her consecrated shores but it shall not be so forever, for her sons shall again rejoice in her. Her land shall be called Beulah, for as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall her sons marry her, that is, marry the land. Quote, I will place you in your own land, is God's promise to them. And then someone more recent, but who recently has gone to be with the Lord in heaven, 
uh, to that heavenly promised land. R.C. Spruill, uh, who lived from 1939 uh, to 2017, though he does not specifically use the word land, uh, I find it hard when he speaks of, of national restoration, restored as a nation that he did not uh, include in that the land, but let me read for you what he has written. The Jews as a people are presently under judgment, but as there was a national judgment, so there will be a national restoration. Their rejection, even though it was a national rejection, did not include the rejection of every individual, so the restoration does, doesn't necessarily mean that every individual Jew will be saved, but the nation as a nation will be restored to God. Which I believe a nation has a government, as a nation has a government. It has boundaries, it has a land, and so to be restored as a nation is to imply or infer that there will be the inclusion of a land as well. What these biblical scholars agree upon is that the promise and the fulfillment of the land to Israel was made to Israel as a nation and will be realized to Israel as a converted nation uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. These pastors and teachers did not envision that a restoration of a Christian Israel to the land was a return to a rebuilt temple or to a reestablished priesthood, sacrifices, or ceremonies from the Old Testament. Those have passed away, and yet the fulfillment of the promise of the land to a converted Israel yet remains. God's purpose for the nation of Israel is not finished, though his purpose for the Old Testament church of Israel is finished. So let us now look at this objection from Hebrews eleven sixteen. But now they desire a better country, that is, and heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. This letter of Hebrews uh, was written to Hebrew or Jewish Christians that were facing and undergoing persecution for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, most likely the author of this letter, writes to encourage these Jewish Christians not to return to the Old Covenant. Not to return to the Old Covenant, a, a Christless uh, a Old Covenant that before the Lord Jesus had come, now that he has come to go back to the Old Covenant, would be to turn against the Lord Jesus Christ. It would be to, to uh, 
go back to an age of childhood when God was teaching his people by way of these ceremonies, the priesthood, the temple, rather than having come into the new covenant age, an age of the church in which the church is full grown, in which Jesus Christ has come. Hebrews chapter 11 in particular might be called the faith chapter just as 1 Corinthians 13 is called the love chapter. In Hebrews chapter 11, we find an inspired hall of fame of saints that trusted God, that clung to his promise. Even when they could not see with their eyes or touch with their hands the full realization of the promise that God had made unto them. They walked not by feelings, they walked not by sight, they walked by faith. And yet their faith was not a blind or irrational faith. That's basically what secularists say about Christians is that unless we can produce before them something that they can touch, something that they can visibly see with their eyes, unless we can do that, that our faith is blind faith. And yet all of these in Hebrews chapter 11 are said to have had faith, and faith is defined as the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, in Hebrews 11, verse 1. In other words, true faith views the promise of God as if it was already realized, as if one could see it with one's natural eyes, as if one could reach out and touch it with one's hands. And so, again, that's the nature of faith. It takes God at his word. It believes, even though, again, it, the promise may not be something that we can see or touch. It may be a promise that it, it is not presently fully realized. And yet, Hebrews 11 goes through a whole number of saints from the Old Testament that trusted God, that believed his promise. And this was certainly true of Abraham, whom God called out of his home in Ur of the Chaldees to go to a land that God would reveal to him, a land which he would promise unto Abraham, a promised land that he would give as an inheritance, as a promised inheritance to Abraham and to his seed or posterity after him. God not only promised this land to Abraham and to his posterity, but God, in addition to his promise, even swore an oath, swore an oath to give it to Abraham and to his posterity as an everlasting possession in Genesis chapter 
17, uh, verse 8. You see, Abraham saw by faith, even beyond the earthly promised land, that God was actually promising him a heavenly promised land, according to, again, Hebrews eleven sixteen, which is also uh, what we see in the following chapter, in Hebrews chapter 12, that speaks of the new Jerusalem, that heavenly Jerusalem as well, that these, again, the earthly, are a type, a prophetic symbol of that reality that the Lord has promised to his people, which will be fully realized in Revelation chapter 21, when again the new Jerusalem comes to earth and there is the new heaven and the new earth, then it will be fully realized. Thus the earthly promise, that is the earthly promised land, was, as I said, a type, a prophetic symbol of the heavenly promised land that was made by way of promise and oath to Abraham and to all his posterity that had the faith of Abraham in trusting in Christ who is, according to Galatians 3, Christ is uniquely the seed of Abraham who would bring salvation to Israel and to all the nations of the world. And so, I do not deny uh, that the earthly promised land was a type of the heavenly promised land. And that the earthly promised land is fully realized in the heavenly promised land. I affirm it, in fact. I stand by it. That is how the earthly promised land becomes the everlasting possession of Abraham and his believing posterity. A mere earthly promised land in itself cannot be an everlasting possession, but it becomes an everlasting possession when, again, it is a type, a prophetic symbol and picture of that heavenly promised land, which is everlasting and eternal. This passage is sometimes used as an objection to a future restoration of the land to a converted Christian nation of Israel. And one might say, how so? Well, it is argued that the earthly promised land points to and is realized in the heavenly promised land, which is true. But then the earthly promised land the argument goes, fades away in the New Testament. And what is left is only the heavenly promised land. 
The old covenant consisting of the temple, the priesthood, the ceremonies are indeed abolished in the death of Christ in the new covenant. But dear ones, the promise of the land to Israel is never abolished in the new covenant. It is never retracted by the Lord in the new covenant. There is never any indication where God says that promise no longer applies to Israel. I've never found that promise. And if somebody can show me the promise in the New Testament, I'll be certainly glad to, to uh, or that retraction of the promise, I will be glad to likewise amend the view that I propose. Hebrews eleven sixteen, dear ones, is only saying that Abraham saw by faith that the earthly promised land was a type of the heavenly promised land. That was true during the time of Abraham, that it was a type of the heavenly promised land. It was true during the time of Moses that the promised land was a heavenly, was a type of the heavenly promised land. It was true during the time of David and the prophets, during the time of Jesus, during the time of the apostles, that the earthly promised land was a type of the heavenly promised land. In other words, the type and the fulfillment of that type existed together. They were they were not separate one from the other. They existed at the same time. That God's people have always looked upon, as did Abraham, that the promised land, the earthly promised land, was a picture and a type of that heavenly promised land. They existed together. If then the if then that is true, I guess the question needs to be asked, uh, when and where does the New Testament indicate that the earthly promised land is no longer a type of the heavenly promised land? Where do we find that taught I would suggest that Paul in Hebrews 11:16 seems to not only be saying what was true of Abraham but but seems to be saying this has been true of all God's people. They viewed their earthly promised land to be a type of the heavenly promised land until until that is fully realized in Revelation 21 in the new heaven and new earth. Perhaps some might say that the earthly promised land ceased to be a type 
<clears throat> of, of the earthly promised land at the destruction of Jerusalem, at the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. However, weren't Jerusalem and the temple already destroyed in the past and the people led into captivity in 586 BC. Well, if the temple and Jerusalem were destroyed, if basically the people in the land were led into captivity, did the earthly promise land at that point cease to be a type of the heavenly promised land? Or did that continue even though God had brought judgment upon them in the Old Testament? I suggest that the earthly promised land continued to be a type of the heavenly promised land. For the Lord, even during their captivity, promises them that they will be restored. They will be restored back into the land in fulfillment and keeping of the promise that was made unto Abraham. God, in fact, did restore his people under the Persian kings to the earthly promised land as a type of the heavenly promised land. Likewise, God's promise to Israel to restore the converted nation of Israel to their land in the Messianic age is also explicitly prophesied as we have in past sermons noted that God has said he would restore them to their land in the time of the Messiah. And we saw that in past sermons where we noted in Zechariah chapters 12 through 14, Zechariah chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, Isaiah 19, Jeremiah 23 verses 5 through 8 that they were those uh, prophecies explicitly talk about uh, the Lord restoring them as a nation within their land in the age of the Messiah. <clears throat> we also noted in past sermons that the promise to restore Israel into the land is implied uh, in Romans chapter 11 when it speaks of the nation of Israel being restored. The same nation that rejected Christ, the same nation uh, that was judged by Christ is the same nation that shall be brought to Christ, is the same nation that shall be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, Nation uh, implies a government. It implies, likewise, land, as the nation of Israel had in times past. The restoration of the earthly promised land to a believing, repenting nation of Israel to live and dwell in safety, I submit to you, has not yet been realized in the age of the Messiah. Thus the earthly promised land, I 
would submit to you. The earthly promised land continues, therefore, to be a type of the heavenly promised land, even after 70 AD, because God's promise to restore his people to their land when they are converted will be realized. As long as God's promise of the earthly promised land to a converted Christian nation of Israel is yet to be fulfilled, it continues to function as much as a type of God's promise of the heavenly promised land to us who believe as it did to Abraham, as it did to Abraham. If hypothetically there was no promise of Israel's future restoration to the earthly promised land, then it could no longer function as a type of the heavenly promised land. It may have done so in the Old Testament, but it could not do so presently and in the future if there are no future promises to Israel of a restored land. But that is the very point. That's the very point. There are many places that either explicitly or implicitly prophesy of the restoration of the Christian nation of Israel to the earthly promised land in the age of the Messiah, as I said, which we have previously considered. And that being true, the earthly promised land continues to be a type of the heavenly promised land until the new heaven and new earth. <clears throat> For it is, as God himself said, the land that he promised to Abraham and to his seed, he says, is an everlasting possession. And again, it is realized ultimately in the new heaven and new earth. It is ultimately realized in the heavenly promised land. Yes. But that again, whether at the time of Abraham were both the promise of the earthly land and yet the promise of the, uh, of the heavenly promised land. They coexisted side by side. So there is no contradiction if God yet is to bring Israel into the land in the future. There is no contradiction that both of those coexist side by side. The promise of of an earthly promised land and the promise of a heavenly promised land. <clears throat> and so, I'm going to leave, I think, at, that, at this particular point, just leave that where, uh, where we have left it. The earthly promised land only ceases to be a living, ongoing type of the heavenly promised land when there is no longer an earthly promised land 
to be inherited or possessed by the converted Christian nation of Israel. When there is no longer that earthly promised land, then there is, again, no relationship between the earthly promised land being a type of the heavenly promised land because that's all passed away. But as long as there's a promise made to God's people who believe and trust in him from Israel to restore to them the land, then that function as a type of the heavenly promised land continues. Well, let's apply very briefly, make some application as we bring this uh, sermon to a close. How is this relevant uh, to us? Well, I think the relevance of this to us, again, focuses upon the faithfulness of God to keep his promise, to restore the believing nation of Israel to the believing nation of Israel, the earthly promised land. And that assures us because the earthly promised land is a type of that heavenly promised land. That assures us when we see God is going to fulfill that earthly promise, it assures us by way of further confirmation and assurance that he will bring us and usher us and keep his promise to us by way of bringing us into that heavenly promised land. If again, uh, there is, uh, God made the promise, said that it was an everlasting possession and that there is no realization of that uh, in the future. We don't have that same assurance that we would otherwise have, I believe. Not that we can't have any assurance, you know, uh, at all that God is going to. There are many other reasons why we can trust in the Lord that he's going to bring us into heaven. But this is just an added, an added assurance that because he will keep his promise to bring his people who believe in him uh, in the covenanted and believing nation of Israel into the land so he will do likewise for us in bringing us who trust in him and believe in him into that heavenly promised land at death and ultimately in the new heaven and in the new earth there's also, I submit, a challenge here, a challenge to us all uh, from what we have read here in Hebrews chapter 11. And let me challenge us with a few questions. Are we looking in faith to Jesus Christ like Abraham did? to usher us into that heavenly promised land at death? 
Is that our assurance? Is it something that we think about? Or is it something that we tend to push out of our minds? Because Abraham, when God promised him that earthly promised land, he saw that God was making a promise to him, ultimately, of that heavenly promised land. That that was his ultimate destination. Dear ones, I dare say that if we don't dwell and think about these things, the promise, that promise, er, heavenly promised land that God has prepared for us, if it is not something we dwell on, I dare say that death is going to be very frightening and scary to us. I dare say that if we do not spend time rejoicing and praising God for that heavenly promised land, which Jesus Christ, the greater Joshua, leads us into through trusting in him, that we'll have all manner of fear when that time comes for all of us. We need to dwell, we need to think about that heavenly promised land that is ours only in Jesus Christ. Have you become or have we all become so preoccupied with this world uh, that we do not see ourselves like Abraham did as an alien and pilgrim in this world, but rather has this world become our very life? Is this where our life is? Is this what life is all about to us here upon the earth? Or do we truly look beyond this world, beyond our death, to that heavenly promised land? <clears throat> Abraham, I believe, is given to us here as an example of faith because he believed God's word and was willing to do the revealed will of God, what God called him to do, even if it meant leaving all that was familiar to him and all that he possessed in his homeland of Ur, the Chaldees, simply because God said, go, I'm going to show you a land. He could have, again, said, no, I'm not going, Lord. He could have uh, procrastinated. We don't read anything of that. But when God spoke, when God revealed his will to Abraham in faith, trusting in the promise of God, he did what God said to do. He was willing to follow the revealed will of God over what was comfortable to him, what was pleasant to him. It would no doubt have been far more comfortable to stay right where he was than to pick up and become a nomad, an alien, a pilgrim, rather than having his own place 
in his homeland of Ur, the Chaldees. You see, Abraham was walking by faith in God's word, in God's promises, rather than walking by his feelings or by what pleased him or made him feel good. He was walking by faith in God's will. He was, as Jesus said, he was denying himself, taking up his cross and following Christ. God grant to each of us that kind of faith. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do plead with thee for that kind of faith that we see in Abraham. We also see weaknesses in Abraham when he took it into his own hands to bring forth a seed of the flesh rather than the seed according to promise. But Lord, we see that which characterizes the life of Abraham as walking in obedience to thee, clinging to thy promises by faith. Looking, Lord, to the earthly promised land as a type of that glorious heavenly promised land which is to come for all of us who trust in Jesus. Our Lord, we, we praise thee and thank thee that thou dost ever faithfully remember thy promises and even those that thou hast sworn by way of covenant. And Lord, we therefore have firm uh, hope that thou will keep thy word which thou hast promised and we therefore look into the future and understand from thy word that thou wilt yet bring a converted Christian nation of Israel Lord into their land to dwell in safety and to dwell um in faithfulness to thee, not returning to the old covenant, but being joined with thy people in all the nations to worship thee in spirit and in truth. Father, how we praise thee for instructing us and teaching us from thy word even today. May thy spirit continue to apply and use thy word in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.